Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. It's good to see you. Hi. Mary Lee and I and our brood, or gaggle, or whatever you call all those children and grandchildren we have were just up in Michigan, and we had a good week. I only had to have my children yell at me. Uh, How many times do you think? Michael did it one of the times. She did a good job, didn't she? Oh, yeah, buddy. So as you live together as families, submit to one another in Christ. And allow your children to improve you, especially as you get older. Okay? Hi, Daniel. Welcome, you and your brood. I think this is your first official Sunday here, isn't it? Yeah, hi. We welcome you. Okay. You all remember that we are um, studying the book of Romans. This is our 78th sermon. And we ain't done yet. And this week we're on verses 25 to 27 of chapter 11. And so let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you know that the Apostle Paul is speaking to his fellow believers, but particularly he is speaking to Gentiles, and he is not a Gentile. And yet he addresses all of them as brothers. They are all the adopted sons of God. Scripture does address the church inclusively as man, as brothers. And here he says in what he writes, for I do not want you brethren. He does not do this to demean women. He does do this to get the attention of men. Certainly the women are listening too, but the Apostle Paul here uses this word brothers to remind both the men and the women that it is God's intent through his creation order of Adam first, then Eve, that Adam lead Eve. 
And thus, they're in the church of Rome that man lead and represent woman. And hence, brethren and brothers. Men are directly addressed, thus teaching them that men are responsible for women and children. That Adam was created first and Eve second. This is why Simone de Beauvoir says, entitled her book, what? The second sex. She was not saying that was good back in the 1950s. Jean-Paul Sartre's wife, who had to live her entire life with her husband being unfaithful to her. So you would hardly go to somebody like that to explain what the good relationship should be between men and women. That's a little word, brethren, isn't it? Now, those of you who have been here for a while say that you've heard me talk about this often enough, right? I mean, it seems as if every time I come to the word brethren or brothers in the New Testament, I stop and I plant my flag. So you will not be disappointed. I'll do it again today. All right? You remember what Spurgeon said about fornication? He said, when you stop doing it, I'll stop preaching about it. Now, why would I bring that up here? Well, it's because I bring up this subject of masculine inclusive usage again and again and again. Why? Why do I do that? Well, when you start doing it, I'll stop preaching on it. You don't do it. I've preached on this until I'm blue in the face and you simply refuse. You won't do it. And so, guess what? I'm what is known as pertinacious. Stubborn and tenacious. (laughs) Uh, Pittsburgh, to be very brief about it. Or Philadelphia, right? Certainly not Missouri. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about this little word brethren just for a second. When the Apostle Paul used this word to refer to men and women together, it was not because he was demeaning women. It was because he was hammering home the fact that God named the race. Hebrew Adam. God named us inclusively, men and women, the name Adam. He did not name us Adam Eve. He didn't name us Eve Adam, and he didn't for sure name us Eve. And when you hear Scripture saying, in Adam we all die, when you hear Scripture saying the sin of that one man Adam, then you realize why we're called Adam. Because I was in Adam, you were in Adam, we are called Adam. And the way the King James dealt with that was by translating it man. You refuse to use the name that God ordained. You will not call yourself Adam. Now you say, well, 
that's not nice. And I said, well, I just listen with my ears. And you say, well, 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 when have you listened to me? And I say, I listen to you all the time. And you say, well, what do you hear? And I say, well, what I hear is tyrants, tyranny, masks, vaccines. That's what I hear, actually. (laughs) They're tyrants. And we live under their tyranny, and they've betrayed religious liberty, and the blah, 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 blah. And if you think I'm saying blah, 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 blah to demean what you're saying, you're right, I am. I'm sick of it. And I'm sick of it particularly because you don't fight where you should fight. The Bible says all scripture is God-breathed. The Bible says in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The highest literacy rate in the world ever was colonial New England. It wasn't so they could read Jane Austen. It was so they could read Holy Scripture. And until recently, our entire culture communicated with each other based on what Scripture says. Not just the story of David and Goliath, but the particular words That's why we had the male inclusive in the English language. But the godless have set their sights on destroying the federal headship of Adam, destroying the authority of man, destroying marriages, destroying families, flipping upside down every single distinction that God has given us, including between male and female. And we say, well, okay, I'm not in favor of homosexual marriage. And then we expect that that gives us a pass and everybody will look at us and say, well, you must be a Christian. But listen, I mean, honestly, today, post-Obergefell, if you're against homosexual marriage, you better be. Because that's the only thing left where Christians are standing. I mean, you realize this. Come on, you realize this. Every other sin that's sexual has been mainstreamed in the evangelical church. You realize this. You realize that this morning somebody put a newspaper article in my, <laughs> in my mailbox. I should never look at my mailbox before I preach on Sunday morning. You know, I shouldn't do this. But it was a newspaper article about my former church written by a man that I went down and held revival services in Letcher County, Kentucky with, with Mary Lee when I was in high school. So he was the writer, and it was my former church he was talking about. And they presented themselves as being, uh, uh, they presented the gospel of Jesus Christ as being uh, inclusive of a diversity of opinions about abortion and homosexuality. This is my church. And so here's my question. If you're angry about masks, let's just take masks. If you're angry about masks, do you call the race of Adam, Adam? 
And you say, well, no, because we don't do that with the word Adam. I say, okay, do you call it man? And you say, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I say, no, I do know you don't. And yet you're so articulate about masks. But masks require you to have a certain specialized education and expertise that you don't have, any of you. And so you're, 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 you're brilliant on masks <laughs> and you're stupid. Ignorant is the word that's used here in the text. You're ignorant about man, okay? Brothers. I would have you not to be ignorant, brothers. <laughs> and it is precisely those people who are most exercised about COVID and mass who claim the name of Jesus Christ who will never call a group of people man. What you do is you say yo's, you say y'all, you say persons, you say brothers and sisters, you say siblings, you say humanity. And why do you do that? You do that because precisely at the point where we Christians should be confessing our faith, we're silent. Because there is no tolerance for Christians speaking biblically. There's none. Political correctness has already robbed you of the confession of Christian faith because your language has changed. But by gum, you're not going to wear a mask. And I say, oh, good for you. And that's cynical. Okay? Listen, brothers and sisters, we do not need, we do not need to have Christians making a name for ourselves as being rebellious about some physical accoutrement that covers the lips, okay? We don't need that. Now watch this, okay? You ready? This is an object lesson. Teachers tell me that you will learn better if I have an object lesson, okay? So here we go. Ready? Man. Did you hear it? Okay. Man. You say, well, but I can't see your facial expression. Well, my facial expression didn't change. Man, man. But what if I were to say, man. And then, man. Well, you get the idea, sort of, right? Even if I have the mask on, right? Try it. I don't care if you're wearing a mask or not. Try using the word man inclusively. <laughs> and then find out what's more offensive, your mask policy or the inclusive male. And then have faith that God has ordained the words of his in this book to divide, to split aside, to separate between joint and marrow. That's what the Bible says about the Bible. It's able to separate between joint and marrow. You want to be separated, just try to use the words of Scripture. 
And listen, what I hope is that you will get to the point where I finally am, where I just love it. I just love, finally, the weight that I feel when I take responsibility for women and children by saying, man, it, it, it dignifies me. It makes me realize that there really is a battle and I just joined it. And I will not turn away from it. I will not. I will not leave godly women to fend for themselves. Huh? Am I being helpful yet? And so, okay, I don't mind if you have opinions about masks and vaccines and COVID and all this stuff, but for heaven's sakes, don't take your eye off the ball, <laughs> you know? Don't let the world say, look at the booty, and all the Christians are going, oh, no, that's a crow, in another word. No, it's a blue jay, in other words. No. Use the language of God. And you will have all the conflict and all the arguments and all the opportunities to testify that you need. All right. All right. Okay. Okay, I'll move on. I'll move on now. Okay, I'll move on. I got away with it, didn't I? I've been doing it for many years now. And I started doing it in the kitchen of Mary Lee's parents' house. That's where I started. So you start at home with your own family, okay? Now, our text says, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery. And the NASB says uninformed, but other versions say ignorant. (laughs) And so the Apostle Paul is saying, I don't want you to be stupid. I'm going to initiate you into a mystery. I'm going to tell you something that you don't know and that's been hidden from everyone because I don't want you to be ignorant. And so I'm going to initiate you into a mystery. I want you not to be uninformed, ignorant of this mystery. Now, this word mystery is bound up uh, with the... um, Oh, how would I put it? It's bound up with the sovereign authority and decrees of God. Okay? Because God does not reveal everything to us. I'll never forget in theology class with Roger Nicole, somebody asked a question, well, when we get to heaven, will we find that out? Because Dr. Nicole had just outlined an area where we're ignorant from scripture. And Dr. Nicole said, well, what on earth makes you think that when you get to heaven, there will no longer be any mysteries? He said, do you realize that that's precisely what even Adam wanted in the Garden of Eden? They wanted all the mysteries removed. And so Deuteronomy 29, 29 should be a precious truth to you. And if you want to know what truth is at the very center of Calvin's writings particularly in the Institute, one of the things is Deuteronomy 29 and 29, which says that the secret things belong to God. (laughs) Oh man, we don't like that, you know? We don't want any secrets, right? We want to be among the, and I know most of you don't know the word, but it's a good word to know. Many of us want to be among the cognoscenti, all right? The people 
who are in the know. None of us, you know, on vacation this last week, Mary Lee or Heather. Heather and Hannah or Heather and Michael were talking at the other end of the room. And, you know, and just to tease them, I said, no secrets. But that's, we don't want secrets, you know. We don't like some people to know and other people not to know, especially if we're the other people that don't know. There's a lot of power involved in the issue of knowledge. But God has decreed there to be spheres of ignorance for us. And knowing the limits of those spheres of ignorance and observing them is central to holiness. Okay? But here, the Apostle Paul says he's going to open up one of those spheres that is hidden from others. And do you know that it is true that one of the marks of a Christian is that a Christian understands things that the world is incapable of understanding? Jesus in Matthew 13, 11, answered and said to them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it is not given. Imagine, imagine what a nasty, poor, ignorant world it would be to not know that from the beginning he made them male and female. There he goes again. You know, imagine if the Met didn't have endless master's paintings of when a man loves a woman. What a tight, stingy, ugly world that is. And to you, it is given to know that from the beginning, he made them male and female. You don't think of that as a privilege, do you? You kind of think of it as an embarrassing quirk of Christianity. But to you, it has been given to know that truth. And so Christians are those that God has opened our eyes. And all of a sudden, we see the beauty that he's made. When we see a peach, we don't just see something that's delicious to eat, do we? What we also see is the principle of fruitfulness that God has put in the DNA of all creation. We don't see blindly. We see with understanding. And listen, don't take that for granted. The beauty that Christians see that other people think is ugliness, you know, dichotomous. Black and white, stupid Christians say black and white. Uh, No, actually, it's pagans who see only mud. (laughs) You know, you ever thought about that? When we read this word mystery, um, 
probably most of us who are older immediately think of our favorite use of the word mystery in all of scripture. And what is it? Well, I grew up in a crib right next to our brand new record player. And so my parents endlessly played what? The Messiah. And so the the Messiah is like more fundamental to me than my blood. And oh, that statement, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now I know that, that scripture doesn't have a tune. But I do find a tune running in my head every time I read anything in the Messiah. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And so this is one of those places where God has chosen to reveal to us things that cause us to what? They cause us to grieve, not as the world grieves, with no hope. Because we have heard and seen the beautiful truth of God, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed, to be ignorant of this mystery, that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And so the reason he's going to open up this mystery to us is because he does not want us to consider ourselves smarty pants. He does not want us to consider ourselves wise, to be wise in your own estimation. Now, in the first service, I always try to discipline those of us that live in a university community to not overvalue the, 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 the PhD. All right? It's very important that we not have a pecking order among God's people between those with PhDs and those without PhDs. Right? You understand this. That's good. I'm helpful. Right? And so I said... Who is wiser in their own estimation than a PhD? And we're all kind of like, yeah. I mean, we won't say it out loud. This guy has, you have two doctorates, don't you? (laughs) Oh my goodness, Eric. We have a new focus of attention. (laughs) Oh my. And then I got thinking, no, actually, there are people who are even wiser in their own estimation than PhDs. And you know what? They live in double wides. There is no more entrenched pride in their own judgments than double wides. Now, Be patient with me here. But isn't it true that those who don't have an education are conceited about the wisdom they have that stupid PhDs don't have? And isn't it true that PhDs think that double-wides are stupid? 
In other words, there is no shortage among us, men, women, young, old. I mean, who is more conceited in their own wisdom than a young man? And that's who's arguing about COVID. And it's like a perfect storm of dumb. (laughs) That's what Adam and Tom said when Adam was alive, you know, and everybody was having hissy fits. And Tom is probably, he's the top infectious disease guy in Bloomington, far and away, a physician, David Carell and my physician, now Bob's physician. Yeah. And both Adam and Tom were talking about what to do, and they both said, you know, the fact is, we just don't know. And do you know, that's the most profound thing I've heard all through COVID, that Tom and Adam both said, we don't know. Oh, but the world is filled with Christians who absolutely know. And so when you think about the Apostle Paul opening a mystery up to us so that we will not be wise in our own estimation, We know that the secret he's about to open up to us is intended to relegate us, right? To lower us and to humble us, okay? So here comes a truth that is going to be revealed to you. It's a mystery. He doesn't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. And it's going to humble you. All right, what is it? He says so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And you know, we we hear that and we all think, that doesn't humble me. Well, actually, it does. (laughs) Actually, we're all very proud of the fact that we're Christians. And we're proud of the fact that we have humbled ourselves and repented and believed. And we're proud of the fact that God chose us. And we know he chose us. And is there ever a time in our lives where us being singled out for a singular honor does not cause us to look down at those who have not been singled out for a singular honor? When have we failed to use our uh, excellence to look down on those that lack it? I mean, you know this is true. You got blonde hair. How do you feel about my white hair, huh, Bailey? I mean, (laughs) it's pretty glorious to have blonde hair, right, Bailey? Don't worry, it's my granddaughter. And then there are people... Who And so what he says here is that a partial hardening of the Jews has happened. And you know from us going through the book of Romans, he is talking about the fact that in the church of Rome, there are almost no Jews. And so he's saying, look around you, the Jews are hardened. And we know that's true because we've read scripture telling us that when Jesus was being tried, they called for his murder and they said, his blood be on us and our children. And if that's not the hardening of the Jews, to want to kill the only begotten beloved son of God, 
how would you define hardened? They're not in the church. They cried out for the blood of God's only begotten precious son. A partial hardening of the Jews has happened. So we know what hardening is, right? But then he says what? Well, he says it in such a way that it's very clear who has been the agent and who hasn't been the agent because, and so in the first service, I use this as an illustration, but it was unfair. I probably irritated my wife. So I won't use that illustration. But you know how sometimes when somebody who will remain nameless has an accident, okay, that they describe their accident in such a way that makes it clear that they were just an innocent bystander who had no moral culpability in the accident, right? And so, for instance, if you were driving a big van, a big Ford van, into Spicewood, and and it was snowing, and you didn't quite make the curve, and instead crease the entire front of the van in at the center because you went off the road and hit a tree, all right? You might say something like, a tree hit me. Or you might say, a tree happened into my front bumper. My point is you do something that diminished your responsibility and role in the bad thing that happened. But I want you to notice here that the scripture says this. The scripture says a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And there's no way you can read that without realizing that God is inspiring the Apostle Paul by his Holy Spirit to indicate that this is something that he is behind. It has happened to Israel. Do not be proud. Do not be proud. The principal reason for us to deny God's authority in life is in service to our pride. And then the word partial. Now, if that word only had to do with the Church of Rome at that time, it would be a bit of an overstatement, right? Because how do you refer to two or three out of 500 as partial hardening? You know, in a church of, you know, probably 90 plus percent Gentiles that, I mean, virtually Jews were absent from the New Testament church. So this word partial is not simply referring to the reality of how many... Jews were present in the church of Jesus Christ at the time. 
but it's also a word that points to the rest of the text, the rest of what Paul is going to write here, that this partial hardening also refers to time. It's not just true then, but it's true also across all salvation history, that it is only partial, that that the hardening has happened to them. And it says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, the minute you hear this word fullness, if you are a biblicist, if you love God's word, if you read it, if you meditate on it, you can remember some other places where this word fullness occurs, right? Probably the one we all know best is what? What book of the Bible is it in? That's right. Who said that? Yes. Yes. A young man growing in his knowledge of God. Okay, it's in Galatians, and what is it, Jacob? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That's fullness. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. There are other occurrences of fullness. One of them is very, very awful, and that is that Scripture records the history of a people group who aborted their babies, placing them in the mouths of their, of their obscene god named Moloch and burned them up in the mouth of Moloch. And these people had sex with each other in their own families. These people had sex between men and men and women and women. These people abused all the gifts that God gave them. These people had a land that was so fertile that it took two men to carry a clump of grapes. And in, are you ready? In the fullness of God's time, God made that land vomit those people out. And God had prophesied it. He waited until the fullness of the wickedness of the Canaanites, until the cup was brimming over, and then he sent in the Jews and they were to wipe out every living thing in that land. And we should tremble. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of the wickedness of the Canaanites came, the 400 years was up of the Israelites being in Egypt, and God brought them out, and it was time to clean up that land, okay? But here the word fullness is used to refer to the fullness of the Gentiles. And we know what this means is that there will come a time when those whom God has chosen among the Gentiles from before all ages, from eternity past, the select specific 
number will be done. And so that's the fullness of time. It will be when all those he has chosen come to him. And then he goes on and he says, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again, that when I was a little boy, probably about your age, I'd guess, Abe, um, my dad would read to us from a little booklet called Romans for the Children's Hour. And that was one of the things we did in family devotions. And one night, and I, you know, I remember precious little from this time in my life, but I remember this distinctly. One night, dad read <coughs> from Romans for the Children's Hour, or whatever it is, um, this particular statement, all Israel will be saved. The author of that book said that, if I remember correctly, that This meant that the time would come when all the Jews would be saved, all right? Which is sort of what it says, all Israel will be saved, Israel's the Jews. And I remember looking at my dad, I do remember this, saying to him, how can that be? How can all the Jews be saved? And I remember my dad, very distinctly I remember this, my dad looking at me and saying, well, you know what? This was when we lived in Philly, in Philadelphia. He said, well, you know what? Um, the man that wrote this book is going to be visited in a couple of weeks, and you can ask him. And that was my introduction to my wife's father, (laughs) who had written the book. Of course, I didn't know who he was, and he came, and I'm sure I asked him the question. I don't actually remember his answer to that question. And so what on earth? I mean, you would have to be sort of obtuse and lazy to not ask the question, what on earth? All Israel will be saved? You know, it doesn't look like that now. You know, there aren't any Jews in the church, right? What can this mean? Well, this statement of scripture is bound up with the meaning of the word all, right? You would agree with that. And Israel and saved. I'm brilliant. Now, I'm not going to deal with saved because I think we know what saved means, all right? But what about all and Israel? You know how I often say to you that you must not allow the engineerish kind of people that write commentaries and Bible studies to allow, to, to, to allow yourself to be pressed into a corner and make a choice between two options. An awful lot of wisdom in reading Scripture is to let scripture speak as, uh, as ambiguously as it was intended to speak to you. Have you ever thought about that? One of the problems with a lot of Bible translations today is that they remove the ambiguity of scripture. You never thought, but if the Holy Spirit inspired the words to be ambiguous, that is inspired. And so if we want to clean up scripture in such a way that everybody knows exactly what the Holy Spirit was saying, what we've done is removed what the Holy Spirit inspired, which is the ambiguity. And here, the word Israel is ambiguous.
And don't you dare accuse the Holy Spirit of not anticipating that. (laughs) You know that little mind game we play where, well, the Apostle Paul was being just a little bit lazy in how he wrote, but I can clean it up after the fact. We don't ever think that directly, but we actually directly think that. And so here, the commentators tell us that there are basically three options for how to understand this text, and that you have to pick between them, although Doug Moo actually does say that two of them can be meshed, and I was very grateful for that. So first, (coughs) some say Israel here is used to refer to all the elect or chosen of God including both Jews and Gentiles. So the first option is that you can see here that Israel just means those that God has chosen and given faith. But listen, we've been going through the book of Romans, and it's just ridiculous to say that that's what it means. And the reason is the Apostle Paul has, and I want to show my, my sophistication with occurrent words, chic words, trendy words, and and just say, the Apostle Paul has been engaging in, okay, you ready? A meta-narrative. Aren't I great? So the Apostle Paul has been engaging in an overarching message that what? That the Gentiles are not to look down on the Jews. But if the meaning here is, and the meaning that's supposed to humble us, because he doesn't want us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, so the meaning of the statement that will help us not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, is to understand that all those whom God has called will come to God. And it just doesn't make any sense, given the overarching theme of this, of this book. That doesn't relegate us at all. That makes us look at the Jews and go, that's right, nanny, nanny, poo, poo. And so, no, I do, not, I do not think it makes any sense to say that. So I think that one is excluded. All right, second, some say Israel here is used to refer to all the descendants of Jacob or Israel. So this would be the 12 tribes. This would be those who have a bloodline from Jacob, who was renamed by God Israel, all right? And then third, some say Israel here is used to refer to all those Jews who are chosen by God. In other words, it's saying all the elect Jews will be saved. And so... Here is what God has determined concerning the salvation of his people, the Jews. When the fullness of the Gentiles have come into the Christian church, the partial hardening he has caused to the hearts of Israel will be removed. It is only temporary that they have hardness of heart. That hardness will be removed, at which time all Israel will be saved. Now, To give you an idea of uh, the battle over this through history, um, those who hold that all the elect are chosen of God, both among Gentiles and Jews, is Calvin 
and Karl Barth and N.T. Wright. I just thought I'd pull those three out because it is an odd, odd group, right? And this is what Doug Moose says Calvin believes. So Calvin's with the neo-Orthodox guy, Bart, and N.T. Wright, who I'm not sure what to call. All right. Second, those who hold that all Jews indicates the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel include Origen, Chrysostom, Augustine, and most of the Puritans. And so here I'm presented with a nasty choice. It's like I asked Heather when she was about two years old, who do you love more, mommy or daddy? She looked at me, she looked at Mary Lee, she said, that's a bad question. And so here I'm forced to choose between Calvin and the Puritans. I don't want to make that choice. (laughs) Okay. But as you read Calvin, you realize they're not accurately reflecting him. (laughs) Let me read you a statement of Calvin here. He says this. He says, the remnant whom the Lord will finally gather to himself. So he's referring to the Jews, and he says that this text is referring to the remnant that God, the Lord, will what? Finally gather to himself. And so it's very clear that Calvin believes that there is going to be a future ingathering of the Jews as an ethnic group. It is impossible to deny that this text is presenting a statement about ethnicity. You just can't say that this text has nothing to do with the race of the Jews. That's been the entire thrust of chapter after chapter. And so we must acknowledge that there will be what the Puritans called the future hope, the Puritan hope. And that hope is that there's going to be a time when God is going to gather in his people, the Jews. But does that mean that this statement can't refer at all by implication to the Gentiles. <laughs> okay, listen. Language works that way. If the Apostle Paul earlier in the book of Romans has said what? The Apostle Paul has said in Romans 9, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Don't you think they had that in their brains when he wrote this? And aren't our brains capable of handling that he is speaking ethnically here when he says all Israel will be saved, but we realize that not all Israel is Israel, and we all of a sudden realize we're humbled by the fact that we're now included among the ethnic group of Jews. And you say, well, no, I'm not descended. And I say, actually, you may be. You don't even know it. I mean, it's pretty hard today for any of us to know with any degree of accuracy whether we have black blood, white blood, Indian blood. You know what I'm saying. And the fact is, 
If you've read anything about the conflict between Native Americans over whether or not somebody's a part of their tribe, it's almost completely arbitrary. And the same thing is true of Jews. And so if you want to get real hard-nosed about where we're talking ethnicity and bloodline and where we're not, the fact is it's very difficult to know. And the people reading this book or this letter knew precisely what it meant that not all Israel is Israel. And what they realized is in the same way that you have the clunky, lazy, intellectually lazy, obtuse approach to circumcision that permeated the Jews of the Old Testament, okay, where they said, no, I'm circumcised. And the prophets and Jesus said, there is a circumcision of the foreskin and a circumcision of the heart. And so you aren't circumcised. And they said, I am too. It is not pious for us to be literalists. It is not pious. It is not good to be lazy intellectually. And that's what a lot of us are, and we feel so righteous, so self-righteous in being lazy intellectually when it comes to the approach of God's word. We want to be able to nail everything down and have it be simple. You remember that... Okay, so let me go back to the time of the fundamentalist controversy back in the first part of the 20th century. German higher criticism had come along and had tried to remove miracles from Scripture. All right? And so it had a deeply anti-supernaturalist bent to it. And so they would say things like, there was a man in my dad's Sunday school class at College Church in Wheaton who uh, was the chief surgeon at Children's Memorial in in Chicago. Uh, One day my dad was teaching, and you know, there was Evan Welsh, who was a Greek professor at Wheaton, there was Hudson Armerding, there was Ken Taylor, there was Tom, or I mean Ray Knighton, there were all these leaders of... uh, missions and Christian organizations and professors. And dad was teaching on the Israelites walking across the Red Sea on dry land. Hey, y'all with me? And this, this surgeon raised his hand. He was not a believer, but he always came. He and my dad were good friends. So he raised his hand. He said, Joe, couldn't this have been that it was a certain season when, when the water was fairly shallow? And the minute you hear this, you think, yeah, that's what an intellectual would do. You know, he'd say, well, I understand that they sort of exaggerated. said dry land. It wasn't really dry. It was just like a foot and a half deep. As if that's any less of a miracle. I mean, you know, the stupidity of brilliant people is often painfully obvious. So anyhow, uh, I'll tell you the rest of that story, which is that one of the... uh, I think it was the female Christian ed professors from Wheaton, immediately said, why, that's heresy. And my father said calmly, yes, that's what it is. You've named it, now let's discuss it. (laughs) And so you think about how sincere Christians seeing German higher criticism would become very attached to the literal meaning of words of scripture, right? Right? 
And so they would say, no, it says dry. And we're all empathizing with them. We're all on board. No, don't rob me of the literal meaning of scripture. It says brothers, and I'm sticking to it. All right. But we also know that often when we say, no, I believe in the literal interpretation of scripture, what we really mean is I'm a lazy dog intellectually. And you say, well, now. And I say, oh, yeah. And you say, well, where? And I say, you remember when Jesus said to his disciples, okay, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. (laughs) And do you remember what the disciples thought? They thought he was talking about bread. Leaven, they took it literally. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus rebuked them for being so lazy and for not seeing with the eyes of faith. So be very careful that you don't make a principle out of being stupid when it comes to the words of God, okay? (coughs) Excuse me. Remember (coughs) that Romans 9, 6 says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And listen, if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find all kinds of occurrences of the same Greek construction, ponte. So it's the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It has these exact same words, all Israel, and I'm going to read you one of them. This is in Joshua, when Achan has stolen and hid the treasure that was supposed to be burned. And we read in chapter 7, 24 and 25, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. Now, who did this? Do you remember? All Israel. Okay? All Israel took them and brought them. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Did that mean that every individual Israelite stoned them? (laughs) I don't think so. Why? Well... (laughs) Say you've got a million people standing in a circle with Achan and his family at the center. What would happen? Yeah, many more other people would get hit with the stones than Achan and his family. And so if I were to say to you, he came forward and all the pastors and elders laid hands on him. If you've watched an ordination here, you know that's not true. Because what we actually do is after the first circle gets around the man, the second circle actually lays hands on the man in front of them who has his hands on the man being ordained. And so don't be obtuse. Realize that all Israel is not necessarily every individual who is an Israelite. And realize also that all Israel, in their heads, they'd be thinking not all Israel is Israel but also realize that whatever truth this is, it is to relegate the pride of the Gentiles 
And so it is inconceivable that it does not refer specifically to the Jews. And so what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with a statement that is intended to humble us. We take it in the context of not all Israel is Israel. We take it in the context of all the talk about grafting in and being cut off, right? You remember that? And we realize that the fact that all Israel will be saved is intended to humble us. It's a secret. It's a mystery, and it's intended to humble us. And so we should look forward to something that we do not see. Isn't that beautiful? We should anticipate the things that God has revealed to us. They should make us happy. Are we happy at the thought of the Jews coming back to Jesus? And you say, well, not all of them. And I say, "Uh, I think it says all. And you say, well, just because it says all doesn't mean all. And I say, oh, for heaven's sakes, are you happy that the Jews will come back to Jesus? Are you happy? Hmm. Now, I learned something this morning that that shocked me. I was reading this... uh, Wheaton uh, Bible, New Testament exegesis professor, Doug Moo, that I always read, along with Calvin. And Doug Moo said something that shocked me. He said that the classic dispensationalists, many of them said that they will be saved, but that they will not come through the preaching of Jesus Christ. And that shocked me. Can you imagine having a commitment doctrinally that ends up causing you to say that God has two paths, one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. And that Jesus is not the name above all names. Or that you don't need to know that name and come to that name to be saved. Or that, there, that he is actually not the way, the truth, and the life. And that other men come to the Father beside him. Well, then these people would say, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that they come to the Father and they're saved through Jesus, but without knowing it. God has another way of saving them than the gospel message of Christ lifted high. God makes concessions to the Jews that they have an exceptional way of being saved from you filthy Gentiles, right? Are you with me? And I would say, you know, a lot of the time where this was popular to think this way was, I'm not going to say it gave birth to it, but a lot of the time when this was popular was after the Holocaust. 
And can you imagine how the Holocaust would cause Christians to say that Jews now are accepted by God without having Christians confess Christ to them? And you realize that young man I was on a plane with, I've told you about, you realize that he said to me that Christian evangelism is is genocide. You realize that's how Jews view Christian evangelism today, to them. It is the most basic repudiation and murder of their identity. And that's why Christian Jews don't have the right of return. And so we live at a time where Christian evangelism is anti-Semitism. And is there anything we want more than to avoid being accused of being anti-Semitic? Yeah, probably being racist would today be higher. And at the very top is being sexist. But that's the, that's the triptych, that's the triad, that's the threesome. Anti-Semitic, sexist, and racist, right? Listen, God does not have two paths, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. No, that is wickedness. That is wickedness. There is only one name. And there is a reason why scripture says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. And it's not horrendous and ugly and evil in Israel and beautiful everywhere else. There is only one name given among men whereby we might be saved. Okay? I'm telling you this because the ethos, the culture, the meta-narrative of the 20th century in evangelicalism has been dispensationalism. And so when you read things like Left Behind, that whole book series, when you listen to certain preachers and you hear them talking about Israel and, you know, the wonderful and some guys are working on the restoration of the Red Bowl and all this stuff of dispensationalism about Israel, Israel can do no wrong. That is part and parcel of this preferential treatment of God for the Israelites whereby they don't have to be humiliated by coming through Jesus. No. Nope, 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 nope. The ground is level, and we all come to God through the blood of Jesus. And it's not the Jews who can just not be aware of it and not know it. And then the stupid Gentiles have to have it hit them in their face. No, 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 no. Now, finally this. He then goes on and he says, what? He says, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. So he makes reference to the Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is quoting the Old Testament about the Jews saying, he will take away their sins. And so guess what? Remember I said there aren't two paths. We share with the Jews 
that God in his unbelievable kindness and mercy is going to take away our sins. I mean, honestly, I just got home from a family vacation. And I know how many I got. Well, no, I don't. I'm clueless, but I did see a number of them. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Excuse me. Mary Lee and I are sick right now, and... So I'm weak, so I went into my office after the first service just to sit before I preached again. And I had been in there about 15 seconds, and I told the men at the front door that I'd be happy to talk to anybody that needed to talk. And just a couple of seconds afterwards, um, two men came in the office. And... What ended up happening is, and depending on, depending, on, um, depending on your perspective, you would describe it in different ways. What I was told was that a certain man had just confessed to a sin. But you know what actually happened? What actually happened is a certain man had come to Jesus. And really the sin didn't matter. The sin was the path of salvation. God had removed his sin from him. We like to think cosmically about these things. Yeah, I know. You know, he removes my sin. Jesus died so I could have my sins forgiven. Oh my goodness, how easily that comes out of our lips without any tears. But man, when you can't stand the burden of your sin, yours. And when it gets intolerable for you, intolerable for you, and you come to Jesus and you say, remove my sin from me. You remember that Jesus said that there's more rejoicing in heaven over a single sinner who repents. One of the things I said to this man is I said, now you realize that you have crossed the great divide from the lost to the saved. And now you see the tenaciousness of sin in your own life. And you are not lying about it anymore. (laughs) You know, you're just like unconditional surrender, unconditional. I came to Jesus with my sin. 
But you realize one of the things that is going to happen now is you're going to begin to look at other Christians and you're going to see that they have no clue what you're talking about. All they understand is that you did a bad thing and you took it to the pastors, you know. (laughs) But that's inconsequential. What's consequential is that he came to Jesus. Who cares about his sin? A sinner repented. He removed his sins from him. What matters is God. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then remember, maybe <laughs> equally nice is what comes next, which is, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, a lot of times you won't come to God with your sins because you know you're going to commit them again. And so you're going to wait until you can have some pride in coming to God with your sin, saying, you know, God, I I have resisted confessing this sin to you until I felt I could get a handle on it. (laughs) Well, knock your socks off. You can't get a handle on it. Sin is deceitful. And so listen, he will remove your sins. Just just an unconditional surrender to the holy God. You can't clean yourself up. He cleans us. And it is painful. (laughs) Make no mistake about that. The word for it is sanctification, and it should make all of you have the hair stand up on the back of your head. It's that painful. But it's the work of God. It's not your work. And he will complete the work that he has begun in you. He will remove your sin from you. Now, we're now going to sing a hymn. And I happen to know what the hymn is because I've done been here one time already this morning. And in the first service, I was delighted to hear the hymn we get to sing because this hymn is my favorite of all that our musicians have ever written or done. It's a very manly hymn. And it's played on very manly instruments. The ivories are not tickled. This is not Billy Joel of some questionable identity. And I want you to sing this hymn with gusto because he will remove your sins from you, okay? And he promises it in his word. <laughs> 